taking command is a story of how God, through a few questing and engrailed master masons operating in America, gave the world the gift of spiritual freedom. Joseph Warren rides in the public square with a stethoscope around his neck, jumps from his horse with energy, puts the scope in his pocket and addresses the crowd. I will not need that, points to the scope dangling from his pocket. The crowd laughs, passing his words back. I hear all from within your spirited mist. Mist the fire, did I? Well then, I will have to rekindle you. The crowd roars in flame, for it is not me who needs to listen to your heart for a remedy to the Prohibition Act, but you yourselves must listen within the secret room of your heart and hear the will of God. Camera cut to the two rich men on a balcony who look at each other with a subtext. Were we not speaking of that very thing that Warren just spoke of? Camera cut back to Warren as he continues to speak. Awake! Awake, my countrymen, and by a regular and legal opposition, defeat the designs of those who would enslave us in our posterity. Nothing is wanting but your own resolution, for great is the authority, exalted the dignity, and powerful the majesty of the people. When God, as Patrick Henry said, raise up friends to fight, Clapping is heard as the camera pans the crowd, showing smiles, tears of emotion, and heads nodding. Warren continues to speak as the camera cuts back to him. Ages remote, mortals yet unborn, will bless your generous efforts and revere the memory of the saviors of their country. Start, oh start from your trance by the unconquerable spirit of the ancient Britons by the genius of that constitution, Magna Carta, which abhors every species of vassalage, by the august title of Englishmen, and by the grand prerogatives of human nature, the lovely image of the infinite deity, and what is more than all, by the liberty wherewith God has made you free, I exhort you to instruct your representatives or means whatsoever the opinion of this grievous and most burdensome law. The crowd's applause and cries are deafening. The camera pans the crowd and those who spoke. The first rich man. Our Warren is the one. He has the consciousness of God. Second one looks with a change of mind. Indeed, maybe you are right. I predict he will be our future president. He will, he will. Pan back to Warren, smiling. Someone yells to him. Dr. Warren, says Robert. Hello, Robert. Robert turns to the crowd around him and then back to Warren. He's my doctor. Dr. Warren, let's hear the other speech you gave. Which one, Robert? The future day. The crowd claps and yells, yes, yes. Warren feels it and yells with passion, pointing to Robert, the crowd, and then to his heart. Yes, I will, Robert. If you know that one, say it with me. 
for it has the power of the word. God wrote it through me. Lift up your hands, ye heroes, and swear with proud disdain. The wretch that would ensnare you shall lay his snares in vain. Should Europe empty all her force, we'll meet her in array and shout and fight and shout and fight for North America. Now mourn the crowd, join in. Some future day will crown us, the masters of the main. Our fleets will speak in thunder to England, France, and Spain. And the nations o'er the ocean span shall tremble and obey. The sons, the sons, the sons of brave America. The crowd claps and cheers and tears. Warren claps and crosses his right hand over his heart as a flock of doves soar by heavenward. Warren points after the doves. You see, this is meant to be, shall we? The second stanza one last time, the crowd cheering and nodding. Yes, yes. Some future day will crown us the master of the main. Our fleets will speak in thunder to England, France, and Spain. And the nations over the ocean span shall tremble and obey. The sons, the sons, the sons of brave America. The crowd cheers and wants more, but Warren gestures to his heart. Now is the time for Americans to stand up and hazard all. We must set liberty free or die. The crowd cheers wildly. Americans never desert our country's sacred cause. Warren raises his fist and the crowd cheers as Warren moves off. The crowd begins to disperse. Samuel Adams and John Hancock walk up to Warren. Well done, Warren, Adams says. When you are ready, the safety committee will soon be in session. That can wait, Adams. I am promised forth. Warren, if not now, when, Hancock says. I must go. We are ready. More ammunition will arrive. Warren leaps onto his waiting horse. His stethoscope falls from his pocket as he gallops down the road. Henry picks it up and shakes the desk from it. What just happened there? Adams, don't worry, he'll come. Warren continues to ravish the populace. His gift is undeniable. Without him, where would we be? God's raised up vessel, that one, organized and imaginative. Any problems? Hancock asks. Adam fidgets, not wanting to divulge. We all have problems. He does have what I perceive to be a tragic flaw that may or may not prove fatal. If we get through this frantic period and he settles into his role as behind-the-scene commander-in-chief, for he is an excellent strategist. What is the problem? Hancock asks can't hold him back once the battle starts. He's always the last one out. <laughs> Hancock, you're right. Last of them, I hear tell. He's a daredevil for sure and needed at this time. Warren is the life of our cause. Hasn't he gotten us this far because of it? Adams, you're probably correct. Who else is there to assume command if we do not suggest moderation to Warren at this critical juncture? Hancock looks down the road and shakes his head as he smiles with irony and thinks, hmm, no one. Tragic. There's not another Warren. All right, I'll mention something to him. He has children. 
But where does he ride to? Another patient at this late hour? Adam says, don't know for sure, but if he's going where I think he is. Scene 12. Joseph Warren's fiancée, Mercy Scalay, is sitting in her country house, writing and looking out the window at her green leafy garden and brook beyond. She smiles as she puts the finishing touches to her poem with emphasis as one arm strikes heavenward and then she leaps up dancing. She peers out the window down the road and sees Warren approaching at a full gallop. She dashes down the stairs holding up her long skirt and with exact timing she slows and straightens herself with proper decorum before Warren notices her with a gigantic smile. He alights from his panting horse joyously. Mercy! Waving her paper. I have it, Mercy says. What have you? I have put the essence of your sacred crusade into your poem. He rushes forward and enfolds her in his arms. Her arm with her poem falls to her side, and her sheets drift away. Oh, Warren, I am trying to be brave. It is impossible when I know a major battle draws near and you love it. Your nature is to be in the thick of it, my knight. Warren holds her more tightly. Not now, Mercy, not now. I am here with you. Tears well up. See, Mercy says, I wear your ring. She shows him her hand. Warren hugs her again. I swear to you, all will be over soon, and you will be my beloved wife. How many children shall we have? She brightens and picks up her poem. Oh, you, ever do you know exactly what to say to me? Come. She takes him by the hand, leading him to the brook, where he sits on a bench. Now close your eyes and... No, I want to see you. Mercy smiles with wisdom to my very soul. She readies herself and looks at him, remembering most of the words. Love's softly flowing stream sublime lets me be on mountain high. Though I stand on earthly ground, my spirit roams the world around. I am here and there as well, letting my soul ring freedom's bell. Only a Tory fool would claim to be, bored by clouds in our cause of liberty. Now am I with my General Warren in our secret veil, asking God to protect my Templar knight on glory's trail. Warren leaps up. I love it. Let me see it. He reads with delight. May I? She nods in happiness. Of course you may, and promise me that you will put it in your pocket, the one closest to your heart, before battle to protect you. Warren puts it into his wallet. What a mason you would make, Mercy. Joseph, I know all that masons know. I feel love divine. Illimitable love is God's very best gift. And from that place, are we not fearless in God? She whispers, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. He looks at her proudly and then utterly in love as they look into each other's eyes forever. 
He holds her tightly and kisses her. I want to thank you for for your quite lovely essence and making me feel renewed, my soul in love every time I see you. We do find the divine. Yes, Warren says, it is us together, what we have become. Mercy suddenly looks troubled. Oh, Joseph, you are my warrior poet, but what if? You will be careful, won't you? I could not live if I did not feel. Mercy, I will, and remember to be my children's mother during my absence. Yes, always I love them. Please save yourself. Don't go. You are their beloved father and my everything. I must go where I send my men, for I have led them into this cause. For the glory of God, Mercy says. She shoots him a warrior's look. Then I will dress as a man and go with you. I ride as well as you do. Warren looks at her with subtext of what about? Hmm. I will learn to shoot right now. Being doubly engaged is better than waiting and not knowing. You know I am fearless in God. Anything then is possible. Mercy, I must do this. I have heard Liberty's call within to lead our country to freedom. Real freedom is to know God in consciousness, to perceive him in all, and to align our consciousness with his, the way that we do, my love. All citizens must be able to choose their own religion. There cannot only be the Church of England. Mercy says, must you fight the British Empire? Even an empire will fall before God's sacred cause. I can only agree. You are correct and wonderful in your perception of God. Mercy, you ravish my soul every time with your understanding. Come here, darling. They embrace. A rider is fast approaching. They hear pounding hooves and move apart. Warren becomes a general as he waits. Mercy proudly notices his presence change, and then her fear begins to mount. The rider pulls up quickly and jumps off. He doffs his hat and nods. Ma'am, General, may we speak? Give me a moment, Miss Scalay. She nods. Warren and the rider step to the side as Mercy moves away, trying to control her tears. General, you are needed. What news from our spies? The British intend to preempt our plans and fortify Boston by erecting their own emplacements on Breed and Bunker Hill. When? My sources say any day now. All right, you go ahead, go by the back road. I will come directly. Convene the safety committee, Adams and Henry first. The messenger rides swiftly off by a different road. Mercy comes back in tears, and Warren tries to console her. Mercy, my brave Mercy, I will be back. I have your poem here, points to his breast pocket. Mercy takes out an envelope from her dress. I almost forget. Carry this with you and read it when times are bad. I will keep it here with your Mercy. What a grand first lady of America you will one day be. I must be brave then. They embrace and kiss for a long time, smiling briefly. What shall I tell our children?
Warren looks down to stop a surge of emotion by pursing his lips together. I love them. One more battle for our liberty, and I will try to work from behind the scene as well, I promise. He carefully takes her left hand and presses it to his lips. Her other hand he puts on his heart. Then they hug one last time. Mercy mouths the words goodbye, fighting back a major onslaught of tears. Warren leaps onto his horse and turns and then rides off fast. Mercy watches him go and slowly sinks to her knees with her arms crossed in front of her. Losing sight of him, her head bows down in utter despair. Scene 13, 11 p.m. Boston Harbor, June 16, 1775. From across the harbor, a lantern flashes once, then twice. Joseph Warren is being rowed across to Hudson Point, North End, to meet with Masonic doctor friend Dr. John Jeffries in British territory. Warren disembarks and joins Jeffries in a small room lit by a candle. Warren, are you mad, Jeffries says, on the eve of battle behind enemy lines? Perhaps you risk both of us. Why? So I can join your errant cause as a surgeon? Don't be so quick, Jeffries. I thought you knew me better, Jeffries says. They hear a noise and wait. Then it is quiet again. Warren lifts his hand and lowers his voice. I have a general's commission in my pocket. The Congress wants you to be the head of the medical service. You are ambitious. We all are, Warren, but your ambition goes against the will of men like me. Tories, Jeffries. This is an inspired Freemason cause, which you supported wholeheartedly at our St. Andrew's Lodge. Jeffries, we share a similar divine principle from our circumstance, our raised light pillar within, and that is why I have come. Of course, of course, Warren, I am still a Mason. Yet, when England came calling for my services, I agreed. General Howe remembered both of us as apprentice medical students when he was last posted to Boston. I guess I want the old way, Warren. I want England more than your proposed one. The general is a master mason as well as his staff. My brother... Jeffries, you were with me in medical school, masonry, tea party planning, and Sons of Liberty meetings. John, there is a tide in the affairs of men which, taken at the flood, leads to fortune, my friend. Not for me, Warren, not here, not anymore. I'm sorry. Then I feel sorry for you, Jeffries. God's effect wanes in England. It is inevitable when empire forgets God and wields its puny human power to stomp on virtue. America is destined to be the next romantic country for the glory of God, where excellence manifested from within the individual will be rewarded bountifully by providence, by God. You would be rewarded, John, 
In England, you need aristocratic lineage, background. Americans in England can only rise so far. The continent looks carefully at that sort of thing. The Americans who served in the French Indian were not promoted, and that is why American officers like Washington resigned their post after their time commission. In all other countries but ours, a person needs human state connections first instead of manifested divine gifts. You are right, Warren. You're always right. Yet something, I know not what, makes me side with England. Then come with me, Warren says. I'm sorry, Jeffries. We must part company, nonetheless, as friends, John. As friends, Joseph, always. Be careful, I know you. Don't risk it all. They lock arms in eternal fellowship. Scene 14. Clear morning before a hot day. Boston Harbor Battle. June 16, 1775. Commander General Gage on board the deck of a man of war with his generals, Howe, Brigone, Clinton, and Pigot. All have spyglasses trained on Breed and Bunker Hills. Clinton says, my God, now the rebels have raised their works. As I reported to you last night at 3 a.m. first, and before anyone else, General Gage, I had undoubted first-hand intelligence that the rebels were at work on their fortifications, and now they seem complete. Gage is markedly dismissive of Clinton's insistence on his priority and makes a joke of it. Clinton, my demure last night was appropriate, and in the light of day, there's not much there. Clinton growing red face as the other general smiled. I still say, General, we attack immediately while their men are not amassed. I will go up the Mystic with 500 regulars, seize the Charleston Neck, and attack from the rear. Then we will smother the enemy at leisure with gunfire from the fleet, assisted by the floating batteries. Gage shakes his head, too aggressive. We are to avoid all risk of disaster. General Howe? Howe. They are a leaderless rabble. We will not trick them, but get them to run when they see us coming. A show of force will change their revolutionary minds. Howe ripples with smugness. They have few good marksmen. No, a frontal attack up the steeps of the terrain is best to show the American rabble what we are about. Burgone says, a wise choice, General. Gage, rather. How? We will send up three columns with your permission, General Gage. I will lead a column along the shore of the Mystic and take the Americans on their left flank. Clinton knows Howe's plan is the better one, but he still wants to say, General Gage, I submit a vigorous move must be attempted before the Americans are fully organized. Gage is slow in thought. Howe says, General Gage, I agree with Clinton's suggestion. Gage's light bulb has now gone on. General Howe, your scheme is the best one under the present circumstances. You are in command of this undertaking, and General Pigot is your second. 
Howe and Pagot nod to each other, and then Howe turns to the other generals. Officers meeting. Admiral Graves will pound the redoubt and the Charleston neck with cannon fire to prevent reinforcements. The generals walk away and their aides come forward. Brigone and his aide confer in low voices. Is General Howe taking command? Brigone says, for now. Howe could not have heard the exchange, but he feels it and looks over as Brigone smoothly covers. Yes, the big guns of the lively Glasgow and Cemetery will finish off this paltry rebellion with an impression Howe tells Brigone he knows. Scene 15. Cambridge, 9 a.m. David Townsend, Warren's apprentice, is pounding on Warren's Hastinghouse door. All is quiet. Dr. Warren! Dr. Warren! Dr. Warren, are you in there? Warren opens the door, rubbing his eyes. Townsend, has the battle started? It has. Are you all right? Perfectly fine, my lad. Just one of my headaches. Please, come in. Come in. Thank you, doctor. I will be ready to go to bunker directly. The water is hot. Please, have a cup of tea while I finish dressing. Yes, I'd like some tea. Thank you, Dr. Warren. Warren departs through a door to dress and continues to speak. My fellow citizens are already shedding their blood for me. Last night, Hancock tried to talk me out of it. Imagine that. What would he say to old give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry? Townsend says, Patrick does not act. He talks. Perhaps some moderation, doctor? You too? You too, Townsend? And then Elbridge Jerry, play the oracle. If your intention is to fight on Bunker Hill, as surely as you go, there you will be slain. Well then, Warren comes from his room exquisitely dressed in a light blue coat with silver buttons and his hair curled up and pinned and very elated with the prospect of conflict. Townsend's mouth opens in surprise. Warren wears it very well. Warren says, I am properly dressed for the occasion. Let's go. Scene 16, 11 a.m., 85 degrees atop Breed Hill. Redoubt, overlooking Boston Harbor. There are eight warships and the sloop of war lively is firing. We see black dots, cannonballs, traversing a blue sky as some land near or in the big redoubt. Colonel William Prescott is seen in the redoubt with his men giving orders. The men look exhausted, hungry, thirsty, and hot. An officer says, Colonel Prescott, where are the reinforcements? Desertions, Colonel. The men have been working all night. We must offer relief, food, and water, or we may not have... Prescott is energized and shows command presence. Not now. Captain Trevette, set up your field pieces in the direction of Morton's Hill. And Captain Knowlton, take your troops and protect him. Fire on the British soldiers as they disembark from their boats. The captains salute and leave with their men. Prescott speaks to the first officer as cannonballs rain down around them from all the warships now. 
Colonel Putnam should be here soon with reinforcements. Cut to Charleston Neck, a narrow strip of land being bombarded by Admiral Graves on the man of war. We see those managing the cannon in action. And we see 13 companies crossing the latter part of the thin stretch of land called the Neck. Cannonballs bombarding around them from gunboats and warships clustered around the causeway at Mill Pond. The colonels, Stark and Reed, keep their men marching fearlessly at a very deliberate pace through the war zone. Captain Dearborn runs up to his Colonel Stark from New Hampshire in the midst of the cannonball mayhem. Colonel Stark, we should march faster, the cannon. Stark looks at him with fixed composure. Dearborn, one fresh man in action is worth ten fatigued ones. Stark keeps marching, and Dearborn stops a moment, smiling at Stark's gumption. Camera cut to Admiral Graves and his lieutenants on their ship, looking through their spyglasses at the start of the Charleston Neck, where a finely attired six-foot Joseph Warren is walking at a very fast pace through the cannonball bombardment with an eager smile on his face. Admiral Graves says, look there, at that well-dressed man ambling across the neck, his lieutenant, with a walking stick, no less, and our shot raining down around him. The Admiral's laughing. Lieutenant, redirect our fire away from that crazy gentleman to the pub Bound Tory, I say, cheers. <laughs>